My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com, and you're listening to the Train Fully Golf Performance Podcast, the show that dives deep into performance training, sports science, and sports medicine for golfers. If you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, give me a follow on Instagram. My handle is at Elastic Golfer. And if you haven't done so already, head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. My goal with the inner circle is to help you restore, optimize, and enhance performance with my follow-along step-by-step golf performance programs. I want you to become a better athlete so that you can have more fun playing the game you love. So again, head over to trainfully.com and sign up today. Now, in this episode, we're extremely fortunate to have Dr. Chris Bishop joining us. Chris is an associate professor in strength and conditioning at Middlesex University. He's also on the medical and scientific advisory team for the European Tour Group, which includes the DP World Tour, the European Ryder Cup team, the Challenge Tour, and the Legends Tour. Chris is one of the leading researchers and authorities in golf strength and conditioning. And if you've ever wondered what you should be focusing on in your training to increase club head speed, and I'm sure you have, you're in luck because Chris recently did a meta-analysis looking at the association or correlation between different physical characteristics and club head speed. And he's going to tell us all about that study. Okay, so we're going to learn which neuromuscular adaptations we should be focusing on and the most efficient ways to enhance them. We're also going to get a sneak preview into one of his new research projects that I'm really excited about, and that is how we can monitor workload in golf. Now, he also wrote an article published in 2022 titled Strength and Conditioning for Golf Athletes, Biomechanics, Common Injuries, and Physical Requirements. I think that article should be mandatory reading for any strength and conditioning or sports medicine professional who works with golfers. So I provided a link to it in the show notes, and I highly recommend you give it a read. Now, that article was co-authored by Alex Brennan, Alex Alert, Jack Wells, Simon Brearley, and Dan Coughlin. Jack, Simon, and Dan host the Golf Performance Network, which I'm a member of. And if you work with golf athletes... I highly recommend you join. This is a community that focuses on strength and conditioning, sports science, and sports medicine and golf. Many of the leading researchers in golf strength and conditioning and sports medicine are in this community. In fact, that's how I met Chris. So by joining the Golf Performance Network, you'll be able to take advantage of the collective brilliance of the community, just like I have. Right. And this is going to help you maximize the performance of your golf athletes. So check out the Golf Performance Network again. I highly recommend you join. Now, guys, enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right. So joining us today is one of the top researchers in golf strength and conditioning, Dr. Chris Bishop. Chris, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? 
Yeah, hi Thomas. Thanks ever so much for inviting me on. It's uh, it's really really nice to be invited and asked, and uh, I only hope that we do the podcast justice by uh, inviting me on. So, back to you. Well, I know we you you're going to be a huge star here. Everybody's um, going to get a ton of information from this, so I'm really excited. I want to get into your your uh, your research here in a moment. Before we do that, though, could you introduce yourself and tell us why you got into golf performance? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess a very quick one-stop shop background on me would be um, I actually went and studied an undergraduate degree in geography. Okay, uh, a lot a lot of years ago, um, and then I kind of got into personal training because um, I didn't really want to go into a uh, you know, the field in geography or geology. So, you know, there's your first query as to why I would make that decision at the age of 18. But being 18, that probably gives you your answer. Um, I then kind of did some consultancy in professional soccer here in the UK for a couple of years. Uh, soon after that, went and did my master's degree in strength and conditioning. And then I've kind of been in uh, academia ever since. Uh, from sort of around about 2012 to where we are now. Um, I've always, from a personal perspective, had a really keen interest in golf. And, you know, you you get people on these podcasts and they sort of feel like they have to say things like that because of the nature of the podcast. But uh, I played a lot, lot when I was younger. You know, I think at my best, uh, I had a handicap of 12 when I was uh, when I was 12 years of old, uh, 12 years of old, 12 years of age even. Uh, so I played off 12 when I was 12. Like most things, as I became a teenager, um, you know, golf wasn't football and, you know, started getting interested in other things and girls and stuff like that. So golf <laughs> takes a back seat. Um, and then just as I've got a little bit older and, you know, in my 30s and things like that, uh, now I'm 41. I've taken up loads more interest in it um uh, i work closely with some of the guys who work uh at england golf and on the professional tours here in europe so namely the dp world tour and the ladies european tour but i got in touch with them a few years back to say that you know i was quite interested in in branching out into doing some golf research and felt like the right thing to do was to ask for their help because um, I think it's really important that the research that we do has an impact on practice, you know, so that it's translatable. And I didn't want to be someone who tries to do research on their own, you know, and then you, excuse the pun, take a swing and a miss because although you've published a paper in golf, it's not really that helpful to anyone. So that's why I've tried to work closely with the likes of Daniel Coughlin, Jack Wells, Simon Brearley, um, and where we need to get into some of the more detailed and nuanced, um, you know, analytical stuff. We work closely as well now with people like Mark Brody, who uh, created Strokes Gained for the PGA Tour, and Alex Ellert, who's done some really, really fantastic work Um summarizing some of the physical performance related research in golf to date so that's kind of my whirlwind uh background information uh that is probably a little jagged but um yeah there you go well let's get into the research now tell us about the association between different physical characteristics and club head speed sure okay so um well first and foremost we've done we've done a couple of 
big meta analysis recently, right? Which is um, basically a structured methods type paper that tries to search for all of the existing peer reviewed literature at that moment in time when you're searching for it on a given topic. Now, in strength and conditioning, the most common the most common line of investigation is usually is this physical parameter or is this physical test is it related to club head speed and I'll, I'll get on to should it be club head speed as the kpi for golf in a minute but uh, that's largely what has been done okay and a few training interventions here and there so we've done one of these meta analyses for female golf specifically we've had that um accepted for publication quite a while ago actually and it's still not up on the website so i'm going to be chasing them about that soon um and what we kind of found was that there's very very little research in female golf and we have a phd student trying to rectify that at the moment um from a, an associative standpoint with club head speed, it's hard to summarize the research in female golf because A, there's not much has been done, but also because some of the chosen assessment methods to quantify physical characteristics are pretty sketchy. You know, um, there's a couple of papers in female golf that have investigated balance tests and their association with club head speed, which, you know, intuitively seems a little odd given you know you don't ever stand on one leg um in golf and there's been some flexibility tests as well that people have tried to associate with club head speed but the choice of test has been pretty poor so it's a bit haphazard in female golf we currently have a a much bigger and more in-depth meta-analysis that's followed the exact same line of investigation in male golf it's currently under review in a journal um collectively this is kind of what the information says there's a a sort of moderate association between club head speed and lower body strength which could have been quantified in a number of different ways like a back squat or measuring peak force during an isometric mid-thigh pull something like that um and that moderate association is um presented as an effect size or what we call a summary effect estimate and in, in English what that means is if you get a number less than 0.2 the link between lower body strength and club head speed is trivial between 0.2 and 0.49 it's small 0.5 to 0.79 it's moderate and greater than 0.8 it's large and when I when we start talking about these numbers, what we mean is because we get a positive effect size number, the stronger you are in the lower body, the faster you swing the club is the sort of broad association we're talking about here. So for lower body strength, it's it's moderate, telling us it's, you know, there's definitely some importance there. For lower body um, explosive strength or ballistic strength or power, we, we can use a number of different terms here. There are also some moderate associations between jump height, club head speed, peak power from jumping and club head speed. Um, peak power is a bit bigger than jump height, and I'll talk to you about that in a minute. 
but jump impulse, which is a, a metric that you can get from jumping. And you don't just only get it from a force play. I'll tell your listeners how you can get it from just a jump mat or a smartphone app in a minute as well. The relationship between jump impulse and club head speed is actually quite large. Now, it's an interesting uh, line of discussion if you're a nerd like me, because um, jump impulse is the underpinning reason why someone jumps as high as they did. It's the mechanical reason why you jump 36 centimeters or 42 centimeters or 50 centimeters. Okay. The higher you jump, the more impulse you produce. Okay. But we're not convinced that jump height is the best metric to measure for a golfer. And if you have nothing else, it's okay because there's a moderate association with club head speed there. But the heavier someone is, the more likely they are to jump less high, right? Because they have to shift additional mass against gravity. But having additional mass might be really useful in golf because you can probably generate more momentum and more velocity. And if you can do that with the club, ball speed will go up and carry distance will probably increase. Again, assuming all other metrics on that launch monitor remain equal. So jump impulse, however, is force multiplied by time. And in a sport like golf, although people would watch a golf swing and it happens quite quickly, you know, I know there is differences between how each person will swing the golf club, but generally speaking, we've got a little bit more time to perform the golf swing than let's say we do um, our foot in contact with the floor when we sprint or our foot being planted on the floor when we change direction in team sports. So the fact that jump impulse represents the force I can produce multiplied by time, we have a bit more time in the sport like golf to take advantage of ground reaction force because there aren't as many time constraints in the golf swing as there are in, let's say, sprinting or change of direction. And the research supports that because jump impulse has got this really large association with club head speed. <clears throat> now, if you only have a jump mat or you only have a smartphone app or something like that, you might say, well, that's wonderful, Chris, but I don't have a force platform. I can't tick a box and get jump impulse. Actually, you can. You can take jump height. Okay, let's say somebody jumped 40 centimeters. And I'm now going to start um, trying to do some maths out loud over the podcast. And this won't work. But I will be able to give you the equation for anyone who's listening and hasn't fallen asleep yet. So if you want to get net impulse and all you have is jump height and how much your golfer weighs, you would do the following. You would take the square root of jump height multiplied by two times gravity. Okay. So two times 9.81 is gravity. Multiply that by how high they jumped, 40 centimeters, and take the square root of that calculation, that total figure. Okay. That will give you a metric called takeoff velocity. Okay. So you will get an outcome in velocity then. Okay. 
takeoff velocity is also what underpins how high someone jumps okay when you have takeoff velocity you can then multiply that number by your golfer's body mass in kilograms mass times velocity is momentum that's the equation for momentum so because you're doing a jump test you now have jump momentum as a metric and the change in momentum is directly proportional to the net impulse that an individual will produce. So that is a process called inverse dynamics. OK, um, and you can use inverse dynamics to generate net impulse as a metric just in your Excel spreadsheet or on your calculator on your phone. It's the square root of jump height multiplied by two times gravity. That gives you takeoff velocity. Multiply takeoff velocity by someone's body mass in kilograms. And now you are left with jump momentum or net impulse, which would give you. I'm now just, you know, it will be totally different depending on takeoff velocity and body mass, but it's probably going to give you a figure somewhere between two to three hundred Newton seconds. OK, that would be the, the metric or the unit of measurement, sorry, for net impulse, okay? So that was a, a little bit of a deviation to say for anyone who goes, well, I don't have a force platform, you can still get it as a metric, okay? Um, as far as the upper body is concerned, again, remembering we're still focusing on males now because the literature is a lot more extensive at the moment in that space. The association between upper body strength and club head speed, is actually small. Well, that's what the evidence says at the moment. And that's probably um, an important point to highlight because it's noticeably smaller than lower body strength and club head speed. However, when you partner that smaller relationship between upper body strength and club head speed with upper body explosive strength and club head speed, that relationship is much, much bigger. It's only moderate still, but the the R value or the, the summary effect number for upper body strength and club head speed is 0.48, which is small. For upper body explosive strength, it's 0.69. And I think it's an important thing, again, to try and understand, uh, you know, why there's a difference there. OK, and in order to understand why there's a difference there, we we at the moment in our research are trying to go back to understand the time constraints aspect of a golf swing. So whilst I know there is, of course, you know, individual differences in how people swing the clubs and you only need to look at, you know, some of the Korean players and people like Cameron Young, who have a stop at the top of the backswing and then go for it. But generally speaking, the golf swing takes between a second and just under a second in duration from address to ball impact. But that period of time is not really what we're interested in. You take the club back. Then before you start the downswing, we know, you know, it's, it's pretty unanimous that you get this shift in your center of pressure. You get this spike in ground reaction force as people, as golfers kind of almost like dip slightly onto their lead leg <clears throat> to generate that force from the ground up, which then transfers through their kinetic chain up the body, right? 
But because of that X factor stretch, our ability to separate the pelvis from the upper body or the thoracic spine, essentially we take the club back. Okay, now I'm starting to do the action on the podcast here. All right, but you take the club back. We start then shifting the lower body, increasing our force production in the lower body, particularly on that front leg. Okay, and all that movement starts to happen before the downswing is even visually moved. Okay, and that's because of that separation in the pelvis. And you see that shift, you see the pelvis and the hips rotate before anything in the upper body moves, because that gives this nice big elastic recoil and torque effect so that velocity and power can be produced during the golf swing. Now, from the moment that that shift in center of pressure or that sort of spike in force occurs on the front leg from that moment to ball impact. The time is probably somewhere. We found a bit of research anyway, that suggests that time is probably somewhere between 240 and maybe just under 300 milliseconds. Okay. So my, my kind of active preparation, you know, on the downswing before the downswings even visually started I've got 240 to 300 milliseconds. When my upper body starts moving, my lower body's already started doing stuff because of that separation effect we were talking about between the hips and the thoracic spine. Now, we haven't been able to find any research that tells us what that time period is for the upper body specifically. But yeah. yeah, we haven't been able to find that. But my guess is if the total time from that spike to ball impact is 240 to 300 milliseconds, roughly, for the upper body, knowing that movement is initiated in the lower body and from the ground first, it's going to be something like 220, 200 milliseconds. Again, I'm guessing. And there'll be some variability in that from golfer to golfer. So we've got much less time. I said much less. Now, remember, 300 milliseconds to 200 milliseconds, you've just lost 33% of your time right in doing that so we've got much less time to produce force in the upper body so it stands to reason that if i have less time to produce force in the upper body how quickly i can produce force in the upper body or how how early i can get to or how close i can get to my ceiling my maximal force production in the time i have available would be more important and that's why explosive strength for the upper body seems to be associated with club head speed more than maximal strength okay and i guess then if you had to start thinking about putting all of this together you know lower body strength seems to be nearly or just about as important as lower body explosive strength or power upper body ballistic strength or power or explosive strength seems to be probably more important than upper body maximal strength as a concept and then there's a couple other things that we investigated and I'm aware I'm rabbiting on. So sorry. Um, I love this. Okay. Is um, we looked at anthropometry and in our meta-analysis, because of the, the type of statistics we ran, any study that looks at uh, the effects of height, weight, you know, limb length, wingspan on club head speed, <clears throat> we had to pull all that data together. So when you pull anthropometry or anthropometric data together, you get a small association with club head speed. But I think there's a couple of things to, to mention there. Number one is 
because of our meta-analytical design in statistics, it's because you're pooling a lot of data together across multiple studies, um, i.e., you know, lots of studies looked at height and weight and limb length, but we have to pool all that data together. It's difficult to know whether one of those has more of an effect than the other. And, and you would assume that mass would. OK, but I don't know the answer to that for sure. Also, um, you know, not all of those factors are modifiable, right? Like I can't change someone's height or wingspan. Um, so uh, they might be important, but maybe that just means they hold some value from a, I don't know, a talent identification perspective for golf, potentially. But but even then, um, there's there's loads of exceptions to every rule, right? And then lastly, uh, we looked at flexibility, okay, and the association with club head speed. And, and what we found was it was the only, uh, we've, we've called them physical characteristics, albeit some of those anthropometry measures are not really. Um, it was the only physical characteristic that wasn't associated with club head speed at all. <clears throat> okay, so when we got that summary effect size, it was actually minus 0.06. And, and the minus is irrelevant, right? It's If it's less than 0.2 or it's less than minus 0.2, it's still trivial, right? Which means the link between flexibility and clubhead speed from the evidence base at the moment is, you know, virtually zilch, okay? But I think there's a couple of things to, to acknowledge here, okay? Number one is... From the available evidence so far, um, the chosen methods to assess flexibility, in my opinion, are pretty poor. Okay, lots of studies have used the sit and reach test, for example, which, you know, I, I don't think it's a particularly good assessment of flexibility anyway, period. But, um, you know, why would someone who sits on a ground and reaches for a box in front of them not be able to swing a golf club? You know, like they're too... One is not even a motor skill, really. One is just a static, can you put your hands here in this position? And one's a really complex, you know, multidimensional skill. So I think whilst the association says there's no link between flexibility, a lot of studies are choosing poor methods to assess flexibility. And that definitely deserves some acknowledgement. So, so the feeder question on from that naturally then is, well, what should we use? Um, and uh, one or two studies did this, which was good to see. Um, and again, found kind of like a, like, you know, some individual studies found some link with club head speed, but I would guess doing something like sitting someone down on a bench, you know, at 90 degrees at the hip and the knees, keeping their knees fixed, uh, either with, you know, almost like in a vice or just getting them to squeeze a little medicine ball and then just getting them to rotate in that seated position. And by doing it seated, you kind of, you somewhat take the lower back out of the equation and the rotation you're assessing is primarily at the thoracic spine and knowing the importance of that separation between the hips and the thoracic spine, assessing rotation in the thoracic spine seems logical to me. Um, but I haven't seen a whole load of people do it. And it's, you can really simply do it, right? You just set someone up in that 90-90 position, rotate. Uh, there's a study out there from 2017, and I can't remember the authors, that just used the Compass app on an iPhone. You know, you just 
You just put the compass app, just press it against their thoracic spine gently, turn, 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 turn. And all you're measuring is degrees, right? Um, you know, it's going to be probably way more accurate than something like a goniometer, um, you know, to assess range of motion. So that would be our suggestion. The second thing is, although I've just uh, slated some of the assessment methods for flexibility, but offered a, an alternative moving forwards, um, I do think that flexibility, there has been a narrative that this is a really, really, really important thing for golfers to have for quite some time now. You know, that's been a narrative that we've heard for many, many years, in my opinion. And I don't think it's quite as important as people perhaps think it is. And again, to reiterate, that's not me saying flexibility is not important. That's me saying choose your assessment method wisely. Um, but also people when they talk about flexibility in the golf swing are discounting the notion of movement variability and there's been some good research on movement variability in the golf swing from people like ben langdown and um it's a very thorough and smart and experienced sports scientist called paul glazier who's done a few golf papers and knows a lot about skill acquisition and movement variability and i think if a practitioner looks at a golfer and they do their backswing and, and you know, the golfer says, I, I can't get back to this position. And this already assumes that, you know, that horizontal position we see at the top of the backswing is where you have to get to, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit arbitrary and a bit anecdotal, but people make the assumption, oh, I see, you know, Rory and Victor Hovland and Justin Thomas and Spieth and whoever else, you know, uh, therefore that's where I need to get to. I don't know that we've really quantified that we have to get to that position, but if a golfer can't get there, a lot of the assumption over the years has been you're not flexible enough, but they're discounting the ability um, that golfers have a number of different movement solutions to be able to get to where they want to get to. Right. If they can't get to where they need to get to because there's a restriction, they will just because last time I checked, the body's all the skeleton's all interconnected. You know, they'll just change something further down the chain to afford more movement further up the chain, right? And you only need to look, I can give you two examples of that. But if I really look closely, I could probably give you a hundred. So Rory, early Rory, you know, 10 years ago, had way more, it's really visible. I've seen it in a, you know, couple of videos and like a photo on Twitter recently. He had a lot more knee bend on the backswing on his lead leg and internal rotation of his femur than he does now now i don't know why that is that might just be that he's had a conscious change in you know his swing over the years from his coaches it might be that he's now got even more you know ability to separate his hips and his thoracic spine so he's just he's got that huge ability to separate those two therefore he can keep his lower body relatively still and get to where he wants to get to. <clears throat> okay. So that's one thing is that over the years, Rory's changed how much movement there is in the lower body throughout his swing. The other option, uh, the other example, sorry, is look at Rory today versus someone like Jordan Spieth. Okay. <clears throat> like I said, Rory today clearly has an ability to separate his hips and his thoracic spine a lot. You know, and because and if he didn't, he wouldn't generate that much power and swing speed. Um, Jordan Spieth is also not a short hitter, 
But if you watch Jordan, actually, he has a lot more knee bend, okay, um, and a lot more rotation, internal rotation of his lead leg femur to get to that parallel position. And again, I'm not saying, oh, um, that's because he doesn't have range of motion. He might not have range of motion and that might be the reason why he do it or it might just be that's how he swings the golf club and that's what's comfortable. And actually probably a better example would be Bryson DeChambeau, you know, who pretty much gets there, sometimes takes it a little bit further back than parallel, but has got bucket loads of knee movement and femur movement in that lead leg, you know, in preparation for the backswing. Part of that is probably because he's trying to generate so much power and swing speed because he loves hitting it far. But there are a lot of different movement solutions for golfers if they don't have um, a certain amount of range of motion before some kind of compensation in the kinetic chain needs to happen. And that's an important factor in the golf swing, right, is that not all things are underpinned by range of motion and flexibility. <clears throat> and actually, it's it's an interesting point about physical characteristics in general to finish off on, is that you know, we've highlighted, haven't we, that lower body strength, uh, upper body, uh, lower body explosive strength, upper body explosive strength, they all have a really important part to play to some degree in the golf swing, because it's a complex multi you know, dynamic multifactorial skill. And it's important to appreciate that no one physical characteristic in isolation is the answer here. You know, it's that if you want to swing the club head fast, first and foremost, uh, it's a skill. Golf is a highly skilled game. Go and practice golf. But if you want to work on your physical capacities that probably over time have a, you know, a positive impact on how fast you swing the club, which in turn will probably help ball speed and distance go up, then getting stronger in the lower body getting more explosive in the lower body and the upper body and making sure that there is some level of prerequisite mobility, you know, having this sort of broad holistic physical training program it is almost certainly the answer and not just for performance, but also for um, longevity and, and golfers being able to stay robust and keep practicing without their bodies breaking down. Yeah. And what you said really highlights, we had Sasha McKenzie on, um, well, geez, probably last year now. And he talked about two main ways to increase club head speed. One is make your hand path longer, which would require more range of motion. But even he said, that's actually not a very efficient way to increase club head speed. The most efficient way to increase club head speed is increase the amount of force that you put into the club. And two ways to do that, according to Sasha, were to improve the transition and or develop your explosive strength and the transition you wrote a paper last year where you kind of highlighted that center of pressure and you kind of touched on that a little bit just now but maybe explain to the listeners how they can improve their transition and what they should be doing with that center of pressure oh gosh that's a tough one um well I, i'll probably start off by saying um if you want to improve your you know your your transition during the swing. I, I think that the notion of the transition is important, but kind of, I don't want to cop out and go back to movement variability, but depending on how someone swings the club, there's probably different ways that they can do it. 
truthfully. Um, so I think that's a, if I'm being completely honest, a difficult question to answer with any level of certainty, given the in, inter-individual differences in how people swing the club. Um, what I would say, though, which is to go back to something you said just uh, about Sasho's answers, I, I didn't know that you'd had him on and I didn't know he said those two things. But that's actually really interesting because those are the two messages that I give everyone, which is there's two ways to get faster. Change your path length. But I, I would go one step further and go, he goes, that might not be the most efficient way. I also think as a you know, a strength and conditioning coach or a performance related practitioner, I don't think that's our job. You know, like if I want to change the hand path length, the player and the technical golf coach will tell us whether that needs to be done because they are, you know, the ball is hitting on the certain point in the club face, which is resulting them to fade it or pull it too much every time, you know? So I don't think um, changing that hand path length is something we would do i think it would be important for us to understand if a change was being made but it certainly wouldn't be our job in my opinion as a performance related practitioner or a, as a strength and conditioning or support staff practitioner also um i would also suggest and this it might not be quite as simple as this but one way of the, well it relates back to that talent id thing i said one way of increasing the hand path length would be if you had longer limbs but, but we can't change that. That's a non-modifiable factor, right? So for probably, I think Sasho probably understands this way better than I do, but it's not efficient. Um, it's related, in my opinion, to factors that are not modifiable. And it's also not my job. So, you know, to do. So I think there's a range of factors why that is not the factor to hang our hat on as performance staff practitioners. Um, but just to briefly go back to your question about the transition, I think there's a lot of inter-individual inter differences in how people swing the club, which makes that a hard thing to, uh, to comment on truly, but it's also a very technical question in the golf swing, right? So how you improve your transition potentially also comes under someone who um is a bit more of a golf biomechanist or a technical coach who could help you do that but i do know that the only way you could do it is by practicing the golf swing a lot you know with purposeful changes to uh some kind of movement flaw or deficit that a coach has identified you know and saying if you change this to this that's probably going to result in greater greater club head speeds for you okay um I suppose I would see a strength and conditioning practitioner's role, <clears throat> excuse me, as someone who clearly understands the needs and the demands of the sport, the training history of the individual player that they're working with. And then once you have an appreciation of those demands, you track that back to the physical capacities that are required to improve those needs and demands relate those physical capacities also back to individual training history and or injury history. And I'll just draw on that in a minute again. Um, and then help to build those physical capacities, you know? And the reason I talk about needs and demands of the sport, but also individual training history is because someone, um, like someone, perhaps a golfer has, um, you know, a 
relatively long history of wrist problems, for example. Um, it might be that, and it could just be something as simple as, if I know I need to develop upper body chest strength or upper body pushing strength, for example, it might be that whilst, you know, trying to manage wrist pain or wrist issues, it could just be as simple as, I'm not going to do a bench press. I'm going to do a dumbbell chest press because, you know, uh, holding a dumbbell affords me greater degrees of freedom and more management of wrist pain than holding a barbell where one object is fixed and now my wrist can't do as much. Does that make sense? You know, so that's that sort of thing comes into, you know, a performance support staff practitioner's role or a strength and conditioning coach's role, in my opinion. But I appreciate I've kind of gone sideways back around 180 degrees on your original question but i think that transition question is probably for someone like sasha in more detail or a golf coach to be honest let's talk about increasing jump impulse increasing upper body explosive strength what are the best the most effective most efficient ways to do that sure okay so um i think it is probably sort of pretty unanimous maybe for about 10, 15 years now, that if you want your power or your explosive strength to improve, that doing it across multiple loads on the load velocity or force velocity curve is the right way to do it. So for anyone that's not sure, you could kind of draw um, force on this axis, velocity on this axis, and from a concentric only, you know, aspect, you would see a curve that looks like this on that graph. And that means when force is really, really, really high or load is really, really high, movement velocity is slow. And when load is low, movement velocity tends to be faster, right? So, you know, think about that practically. If my one RM on a back squat, for example, was 105 kilograms, if I try and do one or two reps on 100 kilograms, I'm probably going to move the barbell quite slowly compared to if I squatted with 60 kilograms, right? So the load is heavier, I move it slower. So there's this inverse relationship. Now, if I want to get my ballistic impulse, my explosive strength in the lower body and the upper body um, to improve, there has to be some notion of specificity there, which means I need to do some jumping and I probably need to do some throwing of, of things, right? So that um, I am helping to train the same physical quality that I'm assessing to a certain degree, right? So if you want your jump impulse to improve or you just want your jump performance or your power output in jumping to improve, to some degree, you need to practice jumping. OK, if you want the same to occur for upper body explosive strength, um, there's probably a few more options to consider. You could do um, we were talking off air, weren't we, about something called a bench press throw, which would probably only suggest in a Smith machine because the bar only moves in one safe plane of motion. Um, but you do a bench press on a Smith machine and then because it's guided by those rails and it can't fly off in different directions you drive up as fast as you can and you let the bar go and you catch it 
Okay. You could use medicine balls to do various different throwing exercises. You could do ballistic press-ups or push-ups. You know, people commonly refer to as push-up claps or something like that. You don't need the clap, by the way. It's just an easy way to understand the type of exercise we're talking about. Um, so those are definitely some ways that we can improve ballistic or explosive strength in the upper body. I think the key really is if we want to improve ballistic or explosive force production. Uh, and again, we were talking about this off air as well. We, we probably want to um, release something, whether that's an object or ourselves. So, you know, jumping, my feet leave the ground. I don't have to worry about um, applying conscious breaking strategies to the movement gravity will just make me fall back down to the earth and then i just need to concentrate on landing softly okay so the movement prior to takeoff is just you know when i'm moving up and i'm just about to come off the ground it's just about pure acceleration the same thing really with a bench press throw or a medicine ball throw i am releasing an object okay i can just focus on pure acceleration of the movement and therefore, movement velocity is at its highest compared to if I did traditional resistance training. So those would definitely be the methods that improve our ballistic or explosive force production. <clears throat> I would also say that when we know that from a sort of general power production perspective, power is quantified as um, force times velocity. Some strength exercises are probably advisable as well because they serve as a good foundation for ballistic and explosive strength. Um, that's probably why uh, contrast training and complex training in the weight room has gained so much traction over the years. So although I am programming a strength exercise and some kind of explosive or ballistic exercise, that is of a similar biomechanical nature, improving my force, particularly for people who don't have a large training history, will probably have a positive impact on their explosive force production anyway, because force and strength represents one half of being able to be explosive and ballistic. So for the lower body, for example, you know, we could be talking about a back squat or a trap bar deadlift or a split squat or a barbell lunge. And again, I keep saying barbell. You don't have to do barbells. You know, we can replace these with kettlebells, dumbbells, depending on the experience and training age of the athlete. You might want to partner that with some kind of jump exercise like a counter movement jump, a broad jump, um, a box jump if it's not too high and someone's, you know, not too experienced with jumping. That would be a good way of improving ballistic or explosive lower body force production whilst concurrently developing the strength which underpins all that explosive force and then a comparable example for the upper body um could be something like a military press overhead if someone's got good range of motion in the shoulders or a bench press or a dumbbell chest press something like that um partnered with some kind of medicine ball throw or explosive push-up where the hands leave the ground you know something to that effect that would be quite a nice couple of combos um whilst i'm just going to add one more thing relating to programming which again 
I haven't really got loads of evidence to support this, but it is just a personal philosophy about upper body programming in general. Um, EMG, so muscle activity research, has shown that the pectoralis major, you know, the chest muscles um, are quite active at different stages of the golf swing. But muscle activity doesn't necessarily mean force production. That's an important consideration. And a muscle might be active just because of the position that it's put in. Okay. And that is, you know, in the golf swing, my arms come together. I kind of move my attachment points of my chest on each shoulder closer together. So I'm kind of already contracting the pecs before I've even moved when I swing. So yes, I don't think it would be a bad thing to have some level of chest strength for sure. Um, but I actually think things like push presses overhead would be a far superior exercise for developing uh, upper body strength, upper body explosive strength, because a push press is done where if you're holding a barbell or a dumbbell or kettlebells here, either on the back of your shoulders or by your shoulders, you dip a little bit in your lower body, explode up really, really quickly and simultaneously press overhead. I think that there's a number of different um, benefits to an exercise like that over something like the bench press. Okay. Some of the most obvious are I'm standing versus not lying down. Okay. So that immediately becomes kind of holistically better for me. Number two is because I'm pressing overhead instead of pres pressing kind of perpendicular to the angle of my body, I'm challenging uh, shoulder flexion range of motion way more on an exercise like that than I am on the bench press. Why is that important? Because golfers don't, you know, hold their arms over their head. No, they don't. But um, about 60 degrees of 180 degrees of shoulder flexion comes from the scapulothoracic joint, not just latissimus dorsi flexibility. So um, it's really, really good to have uh, scapulothoracic mobility in that joint and that's important because we know how important it is to have good movement in the thoracic spine because we were talking about the ability to have that mobile and separate it from your hips the other thing is we spoke about the golf um, swing initiating force from the ground up okay and then transmitting through the kinetic chain and ultimately it's then got to end up you know down the shaft and out the club face right well, when I do push presses and I initiate the movement from the lower body and then I explode up and simultaneously press overhead, I am practicing sequential force production through my kinetic chain. It might not be the exact same position as a golf swing. I know that. But let's not forget that uh, all movement is underpinned by force production. The golf swing is no different. And the better I become at sequential force production through the kinetic chain, the less energy I'm going to waste and the more speed I'm going to produce that gets transmitted to the golf ball. Okay. So that's why exercises like push presses, in my opinion, for upper body explosive strength would be much superior than, uh, and even upper body strength and exercises like a bench press. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I want to get on to um, workload here. And I know this is uh, something that's in very early stages I was recently at a conference with Alex McKechnie. I don't, I don't know if you know who Alex is. He's the uh, vice president of player health and performance for the Raptors, the Toronto Raptors and the NBA. And one of the areas that he really specializes in is load management. And when um, 
Kawhi Leonard was playing with the Raptors. That's one of the reasons why they probably did so well. Load management has become really popular in the NBA, very unpopular probably with the NBA fans. Can you explain briefly what it is and tell us about your research looking into how we can monitor workload in golf? Yeah, okay. So um, I guess the concept of uh, load management, training load, you know, whatever you want to call it has, like you said, become pretty big, pretty important in team sports, typically. Um, it's a way of trying to quantify uh, how much work is being done in competition and in training. Um, and you're essentially trying to quantify the movement demands and the mechanical demands that an athlete or that an athlete goes through during training or competition. Mm. Now, given the really, really high prevalence of things like uh, GPS devices in team sport, it's really easy to do. Okay, for team sports, you know, you just have to look at, um, particularly in sports like soccer, you know, they put a GPS device that's in a vest and that's underneath their shirts and they wear it for every training session and every match. And it enables practitioners to quantify I suppose, a number of different metrics, you know, not just how far they've run or what distance they've covered, you know, what distance they've covered at different um, speed or velocity thresholds or within different thresholds or zones of different speeds, if you like. And that gives us an appreciation of I performed this much total distance at this speed and I performed this much distance at this slightly lower bandwidth of speed. And that enables practitioners to quantify movement demands. And it's really, really popular and common in team sports. Um, and, and there's, I'm not, you know, because GPS is harder to use indoors because, you know, you need satellites for it. Um, I'm not really well-versed actually at all with how it's used for indoor court sports like basketball or badminton, but they undoubtedly must have found ways to do it. There's no, you know, we can't be in 2023 in sports science and they haven't figured that out. They will have figured that out. I just don't know how, to, how it's done for indoor sports. Um, in golf, we are, we're kind of nowhere at the moment, you know. Um, what we What do we know so far? Right. We know that, and I was at a conference recently after the Open, um, a golf conference the day after, and uh, Professor Andrew Murray, who's the Chief Medical Officer for the DP World Tour, he was saying that uh, one of the players that he knows and works with on the tour recently, I think he was saying either in a, it might have been at the Genesis Scottish Open the week before the DP World Tour, you know, they were trying to ask questions about how much practice this golfer was doing. <clears throat> And it came to light that he'd hit a thousand golf balls in one day, right? Which is, which is nuts, right? Like, and, and, and he, he was happy to, you know, quickly caveat that with that's a really extreme case, but, you know, we are talking easily within the thousands of golf balls and swings being conducted each week. And, you know, golf, you, you're probably only lucky enough to be able to take <clears throat> certain time off in the year if you've had a particularly good season or you've earned lots of money, you know, like your Rory's and your John Rahm's and people like that. There are lots of professional golfers on the tours who go and play year round because they're just looking to try and, you know, get their first notable paycheck, you know? And so there's a lot, a lot of repetitive stress going through their body 
sometimes not a lot of downtime um and we're kind of in a place where we don't know what any of that means to be honest you know uh dan coughlin who's the head of strength and conditioning on the dp world tour he gave a talk on golf performance network a number of months ago and he was saying well kind of where we're at at the moment is trying to quantify how many balls you hit how long you're on the range and then trying to figure out as best they could you know the rate at which they were hitting those balls knowing that you know not every club will have the same effect because you don't swing the driver the same way that you swing a pitching wedge. You know, you don't swing it quite as aggressively with a pitching wedge. Therefore, um, the movement demands are slightly different. We do know from injury-based research and a couple of systematic reviews over the last 15 years that the most common injury sites are definitely the lower back um, and definitely uh, the wrist and the neck. And the wrist and the neck might potentially, I don't know if they come through in the literature as much as the lower back, but we know that from chatting to the guys who work on the tour, they see a lot of those injuries in golfers. And the lower back's not a surprise, is it? You know, that we want that really, really strong ability to separate the hips and the thoracic spine. And if you don't have that range, you start moving like a plank of wood and maybe your lower back is being twisted more than it wants it to be, if that makes sense, you know? So it gets a lot more stress. So training loads is a huge topic and we kind of have a blank canvas in golf. So I'll give you the lowdown about what we are going to try and investigate. Um, But the more I think about this PhD, we have another PhD, sorry, that's looking into training load in golf and he's a part-time student and he's only just started. So it's very early stages. But the more I think about his PhD, because we've got such a blank canvas and literally nothing to go off in golf, I almost see that his entire PhD is actually really just a series of preliminary questions we're trying to answer. And we're just going to do our best to thread that story together. So here's where we're at at the moment. Uh, We're finalizing a survey. okay? and what we're going to look at is we're going to ask. It's like three mini surveys in one. okay? it's not a survey for players. It's a survey for coaches and practitioners. And. We're going to ask some general information about what their job role is, how long they've been working in the sport. And then we're going to have section two for golf coaches, section three for performance staff practitioners and section four for medical staff practitioners. And we're trying to get an appreciation in this survey about what these practitioners who've got lots of experience working in golf, what they think are important to monitor within the concept of training load. Once we know what we think, what they think is important, we then subsequently ask them after every question, do you do this? So, you know, it could be, do you think monitoring the number of balls hit during practice is important? Yes, I strongly agree. Next question, do you actually do that? No, not really, you know, (laughs) might be the answer type thing. Um, So that's kind of, you know, the survey is set up to say, how important do you think A is? Do you do A? How important do you think B is? Do you do it? And it gives us an appreciation of what the experts think is important, you know, for monitoring training load. And then it also helps us to fill the gaps and find the cracks. You know, what do you do, but what don't you do? And it's our then job to then, you know, go back to the practitioners and try and understand why, you know, A, B and C is being done, but X, Y and Z isn't. The plan then for these kind of next set of preliminary uh, questions is as follows. 
we would like to uh we're going to be getting golfers sorry into our lab okay we're going to ask them to swing uh on force plates but the force plates are embedded okay into the floor with nice kind of thick firm almost like athletics uh track style material okay so it's there's no risk of standing on a slippery force plate and not swinging the club properly um we're going to ask them to swing uh different golf clubs and hit different shots basically on force plates so we're going to ask them to hit a driver you know however many five ten times we're then going to ask them to do the same thing with a long iron a mid iron a short iron and we're even going to get them to putt and what we're trying to quantify is we're trying to quantify the changes in force production that you get between swinging the different clubs because having an appreciation of how much force goes through your body okay a driver compared to a short iron for example we're pretty certain we know there's going to be differences there what we don't know uh is how big those differences are okay and that naturally having a, as a starting point enables us to have a little bit of an appreciation about how much force and how much stress is going through their body when they you know swing a driver versus do another club our force plates are embedded into uh, our 3D camera system set up as well. So if we want to, we can put markers on golfers and that is a decision yet to be fully made. But we could do, you know, 3D motion analysis as well, which would enable us to start quantifying torque and segment rotation and segment power and segment work at different places in the body so if we wanted to turn around and go well force is this but actually this is the amount of work being done at the wrist and this is the amount of work being done at the shoulder at different stages of the swing we could do that too the next study is um we're going to try and quantify um changes in rate and volume of shots Okay, so we'll look at we'll get people swinging on the force plate again and we'll say we'll kind of set almost like uh, this is very crude at the moment, but three different conditions for argument's sake. And we'll say, take your driver. Okay, what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to hit uh, 20 shots in 20 minutes. Next condition, 20 shots in 40 minutes. Next shot, uh, next condition, 20 shots in 60 minutes. And, you know, we'll try and see whether... When you do it quickly, almost whether there's this fatiguing effect and we get this drop off in force production because we're asking them to swing too quickly. We'll also look at some internal measures as well, like RPE and heart rate, you know, um, and you'd expect that if I have to hit 20 shots in 20 minutes, you know, maybe my RPE would be six or seven and 20 shots in 60 minutes, maybe it would be three, you know, or uh, again, all hypothetical at this stage, but rate and volume we know is important but what we think we need to do is try and quantify that somehow and then the other thing that we know from speaking to the guys on the dp world tour the practitioners this is um and this idea actually broadly came from andrew murray the thing that no one's investigating is the effects of temperature you know they might go and play in dubai where it's 100 degrees and then they might go and play in the swiss alps where it's you know 60 degrees depending on the time of year right uh, or depending on the weather conditions blah 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 so um we're going to try and undertake a similar study design where we manipulate the temperature in the lab quite extensively and look at you know changes in force production which may or may not be very large you know they might be discrete or things like that but actually i wonder if some of the other measures you know 
um, might be a little bit more sensitive, you know, like heart rate and things like that and RPE, because things might naturally feel tougher when it's colder because we run the same warm up. But, you know, my muscle temperature won't be as high as when it's hot. Therefore, my tissue might not be as elastic and therefore things might feel harder, you know. So what we what we're hoping to get across this Ph.D. is like a series of answers which go, if you're interested in quantifying X, external measures of load are probably important to monitor you know, which is a direct assessment of force production. If you're interested in monitoring, you know, B, C and D, actually the most sensitive measures of tracking changes in load would be your internal measures like heart rate and RPE and things like that. Um, and like I said, it's just a. It, as I'm talking about it now, you know, I'm kind of taking a, a similar study design across three different studies and basically just going, look, force production, um temperature and how often and how much you hit a golf ball we know are probably important things that just need to be quantified as an initial starting point for trying to understand um what we should measure when we should measure it if at all so that's kind of our plans for that phd um and it's probably also worth mentioning you know that anyone's phd will evolve you know, like that's our initial plan, but I wouldn't mind betting we'll get to the end of data collection in study one or even halfway through data collection for study one. And we'll think, OK, that next idea we had isn't going to work, you know, and, and the, you know, the PhD kind of evolves naturally that way. I know mine changed about half a dozen times, you know, <laughs> throughout as I was doing it. And that's just, you know, the nature of doing research over three or four or five years. You just have to appreciate that. And that's OK. It's It's part of the parcel. It's part of the part of the journey you know it's part of the course so um but those are our initial plans to try and answer a few initial questions around the concept of loading golf i'm going to ask you here uh, about um uh acute and chronic workload ratio because in soccer and rugby a higher chronic workload has been shown to be protective against injury and that might seem counterintuitive for golf right? Because maybe it's true that we're, we need golfers to hit a certain number of balls every week, even though that might seem a little counterintuitive. But you have an interesting take with with these types of ratios. Maybe explain. Yeah, so um, I suppose my um, my issue is, is not so much with something like the acute chronic workload ratio metric <clears throat> uh, specifically, but more about ratio metrics in general. Now, uh, my PhD was in asymmetry. Asymmetry is a metric that we create. You know, we typically report asymmetries as percentages, but um, how do you get that percentage? You have to have a value on your left leg and your right leg or your dominant leg and your non-dominant leg in order to create that percentage. Almost everything has error or measurement error in its own right. And that might be measurement error from the device, but more often than not, it's more biological error from the human. So every measurement we take has error on our left side and our right side. And that could be force on my left leg and right leg from um, golfers swinging on force plates as well. It could be anything. <clears throat> but because each limb generates its own level of variance or error or measurement error, when you combine error with error, to create one metric, you create more error, right? Mm -hmm. So you compound the error. And that's not exclusively, but a pretty 
um, fair assumption to make about almost any ratio metric. And what I'll do is I'll try and bring this back to golf to make it more relevant, right? Um, sometimes in tournaments, they seem to do it for... I, don't think I've seen it loads on the PGA tour, but I've seen it in some of the majors, which I know is not run by the PGA tour. They talk about players hitting strike efficiency off the tee, right? And they go, here's strike efficiency, here's a strike efficiency stat. And they'll go 86%, you know, 94%, 79%. I'm not entirely sure how they construct that stat, but from chats with the guys who work on the tours, I believe it's somewhat similar to the ratio of smash factor, right? Which is ball speed divided by club head speed, right? And that gives you a number, <clears throat> excuse me, of, well, anything but will be greater than one, right? Because ball speed is greater than club head speed, but it's not, you know, uncommon to see smash factors around 1.3, 1.4, something like that. Now, my issue is is probably not so much to do with smash factor at any one moment in time. My issue is that as sports scientists or strength and conditioning coaches or performance staff practitioners, we don't just collect data at one moment in time. We collect data over periods and we look for changes or trends. That's what we do. <clears throat> So my issue with ratio metrics, and again, I'll use smash factor as the vessel to make my point here. If I do um, a training intervention, whether I'm a golf coach or a strength and conditioning coach, whatever, and we are deliberately trying to improve someone's swing speed, and I see smash factor go from 1.36 to 1.42, the first thing I would want to do as a support staff practitioner is quantify whether that change is real. Is that difference of 0.06, is that now greater than the measurement error in the smash factor metric? Otherwise, it's improved, but the natural variability of that metric <clears throat> is wider than that 0.06. So the change is less than the error in the test. So it doesn't mean anything. But Beyond that, and a little bit more kind of holistic, uh, conceptually, I suppose, if someone goes, oh, my smash factor went up to 1.42, I'll go, okay, great. Um, how did it change? The answer to that is the only way you know how it changed is if you go back to the raw metrics of ball speed and club head speed. <clears throat> now, the chances are if club head speed goes up, ball speed probably goes up as well, uh, given how interrelated those two are. But... The point still stands that if smash factor improves and I go, how did it improve? Did one get better? One of those metrics get better more than the other or did one go up or did one go down? Now that's very unlikely with club head speed and ball speed. I grant you, but gen as a general rule about ratio data, if you can't tell me why something has changed, why a value has changed without going back to the component parts that make up the ratio, I'm struggling to see what value the ratio is giving you. And it's not because the problem is at any one moment in time. I honestly think that's key as part of the message. It's because as practitioners, we don't stand still in time. We're looking for changes and trends over time. Is my golfer, is my athlete moving in the right direction? Yes, they are. Great, I've seen a change. Wonderful. Where did that change come from? Ah, 
hang on, I better go to the component parts that make the ratio up. Fine. What value is the ratio now giving you if you have to go back to the component parts to understand the change? You know, you've just created, it's almost like a, a metric born out of convenience, in my opinion, and lots and lots of ratios are. And when you have to go back to the component parts of the ratio to appreciate why something changes, and you know that both component parts are of interest to increase. So to go back to smash factor, yes, I want to increase my club head speed, probably. Yes, I definitely want to increase my ball speed. If I know that increases in both of them are desirable, why don't I just monitor changes in club head speed and ball speed as separate entities and check that the change in them is greater than their own measurement error rather than creating a ratio where the only way I understand it is if I go back to the component parts anyway. So that's kind of conceptually my problem with ratio metrics. Um, you could say the same. I mean, sports science is rife as a profession about creating ratio metrics. And I've done a I've done a couple of articles on this uh, and they're just opinion pieces. You know, they're not like empirical research where I've proven something's really, really important. But I can conceptually, that seems like a flawed concept and almost a waste of time as a practitioner, you know. So I would suggest that um, people strongly consider whether a ratio metric is actually giving you any extra value in the kind of continued monitoring process. Yeah. I, you know what? I never really thought about it that way before, but I think you're, you're completely right. And it is kind of silly to have a ratio when you have to go back and check why you're getting a certain value with a certain change in that ratio. With that in mind, with talking about ball speed and all that, tell us about your research looking into launch characteristics. Yeah, okay. So we have a third PhD at Middlesex that's looking at uh, launch monitor data. Um, and I suppose the, uh, to some degree, the accuracy, uh, the reliability and the usability of it. So again, uh, relatively early stages, I'll give you a broad overview of what that looks like, and then what some of our plans are for the existing studies. So Study one is, uh, sorry, before I go into study one, I'll talk to you about some research that was done in sort of 2016, 2017, 2018 by a guy called Rob Leach, who did his PhD at Loughborough University here in the UK with actually the Technology Research Institute up at Loughborough, not the sport department. But he did his research in... Um, launch monitor data in golf. And one thing they did was they determined the validity and the accuracy of the TrackMan 3 and the Foresight GC2E. Can't remember it off the top of my head. It's not the GC quad. Uh, it's the model before it, I believe. Um, and the TrackMan 3. And they looked at the validity of that against a high-speed camera system. And I put Loughborough, they have a robot that can swing a golf club, right? <clears throat> Which is pretty cool. I've been up to see it. And, um, you know, you can essentially, because it's a robot, create the settings where you get the same swing speeds, swing path, et cetera, et cetera. So what they found was um, the GC, oh, the Foresight, sorry, is 
more accurate than the TrackMan for some parameters. The TrackMan is more accurate than the Foresight for other parameters. <clears throat> and you have to appreciate that there are differences in the technology, right? One's this like really, really high speed camera flutter system, which is the GC quad or the Foresight model. And TrackMan is uh, dual Doppler radar technology, which is essentially what people use to track missiles, right? So, you know, it's looking for things flying through the air. <clears throat> um, the big consensus that came out of that research, it was really, really good research, actually, was that ball metrics from a launch monitor have less error than club metrics, okay? They are more accurate. And I think that's really, really important when we consider um, using TrackMan or radar technology devices. So what are we doing in this research? Well, the first thing we're doing is we know that TrackMan's pretty accurate relative to this laboratory standard high-speed camera system. So when you take that to the field, it's that or the GC quad, you know, I don't want anyone from a company listening to this attack me for, you know, there are other options out there. Um, they're both pretty accurate, right? And the GC Quad is the latest model and the TrackMan 4 is the latest model of TrackMan. We've got a TrackMan 4. Um, we are trying to validate a launch monitor called the FlightScope Mevo Plus, which is a cheap, cheap launch monitor relative to the TrackMan. You know, TrackMan's like 20 to 24,000 pounds. The FlightScope Mevo Plus is 2,000 pounds. But we've seen people like Bryson DeChambeau, you know, advertise the Mevo Plus, like, here's my great launch monitor, blah, blah, blah. Um, we're trying to validate the Flightscope Mevo Plus against the TrackMan, knowing that the TrackMan is pretty accurate, <clears throat> okay? So what have we found so far? Well, that study is currently under review in a journal. <clears throat> we looked at a range of different metrics. What did we look at? We looked at club head speed, ball speed, carry distance, smash factor, spin rate, spin axis, launch angle, and attack angle. Right. Um, if we talk about reliability, so consistency in the measurement in the measurement or the metric, um, ball speed, club head speed, uh, carry distance, and smash factor show pretty good reliability statistics pretty consistent right and the experience of the golfers was across like 30 golfers so far we've got a mean handicap of about five okay plus or minus five so some golfers are pros and have you know plus four handicap some golfers you know have handicaps of eight nine or ten <clears throat> so there is a difference in the sample but Generally speaking, we're talking reasonable, reasonably high level amateur players here, okay, as a group mean. So those four metrics are good. Um, it doesn't matter whether you use the TrackMan or the FlightScope Mevo Plus, spin rate, spin axis, launch angle and attack angle show a lot more inconsistency in their numbers. But I kind of consider them almost, might not be the right name for it, but I almost consider them strategy-based metrics. So if the only thing you were looking at is reliability and isolation, you'd go, gosh, you know, that coefficient of variation value is like 30%. That's really unreliable. But I think that no one probably looks at that metric in isolation, right? The reason that you get much greater variation in those four metrics is because 
they are strategy metrics. They help to explain where the golf ball ends up. You know, did it land on the fairway at 300 yards or did it land in the rough at 275 yards? Oh, it landed in the rough at 275 because my spin rate wasn't 2,500. It was 3,800 and I hit it off the heel. You know, so my spin axis was this instead of this. So they can be used to explain the outcome of a given shot. The issue, you know, from a tangible perspective from practitioners, I think it's hard sometimes to use those metrics for two reasons. Number one is, unless you're a golf coach, I don't think people know, you know, they might go, someone told me that spin rate should be between 2,200 and 2,600. So if I don't see a number that's in between that range, I know I've done it wrong, but they don't know what they've done wrong. That means the spin rate isn't where it should be, right? Um, that's also a somewhat binary approach to a number, right? And and that may not be, you know, great either, potentially. The other thing is, if you are working with a golf coach, for example, and they go, oh, do you know what the problem is? Oh, your attack angle was minus 1.1. And really what we need it to be is plus 0.8. You know, I'll just go, oh, okay, I'll just change it to plus 0.8, shall I? Like, I'm not skilled enough to do that. And I don't know what I need to do. I don't know what the fault was in the golf swing that created my number to be minus 1.9 instead of plus 0.8. So the usability of some of those metrics in practice without someone who really knows what they mean is, is hard, okay? So we've kind of suggested that as support staff practitioners, maybe we should be, um, we should only be considering metrics where we know that the outcome is always the larger value right and that um we know are consistent if that makes sense <clears throat> and that typically is club head speed ball speed carry distance and smash factor although we've added an air of caution around smash factor because of what we said just a minute ago if you then look at the accuracy so that's a reliability aspect if you look at an accuracy perspective of the mevo plus against the track man again um club head speed remembering that the trackman has a little bit of error too because everything's got error uh club head speed ball speed carry distance smash factor pretty good right they're they're pretty pretty accurate so basically anything that's reliable tends to be pretty accurate is, is generally speaking spin rate in particular has crazy differences okay in this cheaper launch monitor like we're talking we did something called levels of agreement analysis through bland Altman plots. It's a type of statistic. And we're talking like the level of error with a driver was like a thousand revolutions per minute in spin rate, which is huge, you know, and with a six iron, it was like 860 revolutions per minute. Like it's, it's a big level of error. Now I say level of error, you're making the assumption that the track man is accurate, but from Rob Leach's study, we know that generally it's pretty accurate. So there's quite a lot of error in spin rate. Um, there's also more error in some of those other metrics, uh, launch angle and attack angle with a driver than there is with a six iron. <clears throat> okay. So we did this with a driver and a six iron. All right. Um, so I think generally speaking, the take home message is probably uh Club head speed, ball speed, carry distance and smash factor are fine to use with a cheaper launch monitor. <clears throat> Some of the others probably aren't like launch angle, attack angle and spin rate. Um, 
The other thing I would suggest, though, despite telling you that clubhead speed is a good metric or a usable metric, and it's also the metric that, you know, strength and conditioning research is just focused on really, really heavily. We've known for a while now that, um, you know, these launch monitors, they are radar technology. They are looking for an object flying through the sky, but you don't throw the club and the club doesn't travel, right? The thing that travels is the ball. And we know from Rob Leach's research that ball parameters have less error with radar technology than club parameters. And that's because it's radar technology. It's looking for something traveling through the air. So although the error and the consistency in club head speed and ball speed are pretty comparable, they're pretty much the same, the technology is looking for the ball. It's not looking for the club. And actually, I think really the, the KPI for golf should be ball speed, not club head speed, particularly when you're using radar technology launch monitors, because that's what it's looking for. It's also, you know, you see a little snippet, and this is very anecdotal, this last bit. You see snippets from social media with people like Bryson, DeChambeau, and more recently, like Patrick Harrington. <clears throat> you know, they go on that launch monitor, and when they start, you see them, you know, like, on the range before a, before you know they're on there on the range on a tuesday a couple of days before the event starts sometimes they're messing about a little bit um you know trying to absolutely leather their driver none of them come off looking at the launch monitor and go to the camera and go ooh 130 mile an hour club head speed they all quote ball speed yeah. um and so you know i feel like it's pretty rare for research to be ahead of practice generally speaking, as a rule in life. But the players know what they should be looking for. And it feels like that our research needs to catch up and figure that out. So that's a message we've put across um, there as well. Some of the other studies we've got lined up, um, the student has been to a couple of high-profile amateur events uh, this summer already to gather launch monitor data in competition. So we've done a couple of studies. We've done this validation study. We're doing a test retest reliability study. We're also going to be looking at the association between our physical testing battery that we've created uh, for these golf PhDs and, you know, not just club head speed, all these different um, golf launch monitor metrics that are reliable and usable. And then this final study, he's been to these high level amateur tournaments and we're going to try and present, you know, data in competition, not just in the lab. So we go, look, this is kind of theoretically what the data tells us around the consistency, the usability, the reliability of launch monitor metrics. This is the association in a controlled laboratory environment between different physical characteristics and not just club head speed, more launch monitor metrics that we know are usable. But guess what? What happens to that stuff when you take its competition? That this has been extremely informative. I, I want to thank you for coming on, Chris. For the people who maybe want to learn more from you, are they able to reach out to you uh, anywhere? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, it goes without saying. Um, so you can just email me direct if you want to, uh, which is c.bishop at mdx.ac.uk um alternatively you can find me on twitter more is probably the the social media platform i'm on most 
um, or LinkedIn. Twitter, my handle is at Dr. Chris Bishop. Uh, if you want to find me and then LinkedIn, um, I suppose just type my name in Middlesex University and I'll probably come up somewhere. Well, I really appreciate this, Chris. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks ever so much, Thomas, for having me on. It was uh, really enjoyable. And I think some of my answers were quite long-winded and went on for a little while. So apologies if I rambled too much. No, definitely not. Definitely not too long-winded. We are definitely golf nerds here. So <laughs> there's no such thing as too long-winded on the Train Fully podcast. Okay, fantastic. Thanks very much.